we often have a class that is entitled composition, but it's really analysis. It's really looking at other people's pieces and try to understand them and see their structures and where it comes from. But we are not usually taken on the path of creating our own music. My name is William Chernoff, and today on the Rhythm Changes podcast, I spoke to Marina Hasselberg. Marina was very open to share tons of insights about coming to Vancouver, crossing over from being a classical musician to an improviser, the state of Vancouver's art scene and how we can improve it, and what she's doing at the 2021 Vancouver Jazz Festival. We just met in this conversation, and it was really enjoyable, so I hope you enjoy it too. All right, Marina Hasselberg, welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, there's two important events going on right now. One of them is the Vancouver Jazz Festival, but the other one that maybe we'll really remember for a long time is this West Coast heat wave. So how are you coping <laughs> with this right now? It's really funny. Well, I have had my first Jazz Fest show yesterday, which was the first really hot day. So that was quite an experience. Uh, but I must say that coming from a very hot country of Portugal, in a way, it feels like home. My mom was actually even joking, saying that since you cannot come for holidays, this is it. Enjoy it. It's <laughs> a bit of Portugal in Canada. So it has been extremely hot for sure. And I love the evenings when they're super hot. I love going for like evening walks when everything is calm and you just have that heat, but a breeze just fantastic and find it very inspiring but yeah during the day is a little bit too much so we have a few tricks that we do in portugal at least that's kind of how i remember things being so if you are like really not coping with the heat you jump in a cold shower with a t-shirt on right and then you keep wearing the t-shirt stuff like that staying home keeping the blinds closed a lot of iced water and just surviving that way and so far so good i'm actually enjoying it how was it to survive the actual in-person show experience how was that yeah, uh, so it was an indoor show, so that helps a lot. Obviously, it was really, um, it was really good. I felt a little bit more concerned about the audience that had to wait outside, right? But apparently, there was someone offering to uh, spray them with what. <laughs> <laughs> whomever was into it so i think they had some fun that was great the jazz fest team is absolutely incredible to work with so they just made everything super smooth and nice and fun for everyone obviously because of the pandemic there's like a limited audience but it was sold out so the maximum they can take in at iron works is 25 people so there's still enough space you know i'm imagining like the usual traditional jazz fest nights at Ironworks, they have so many people, right? That would have been a different story. But I think this helped everyone be a bit cooler. What's your favorite jazz festival venue? The Ironworks, for sure. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It just feels incredible. That space is so special. It's, um, it's in Railtown, right? It's by Crab Park and the beach. So that's really nice. It has different rooms. So it has the main room where the shows happen, but also has a secondary room where there's a bar and that leads into a backyard that's absolutely gorgeous by the train tracks and has like the, the little bridge that goes into Crab Park passes above it. So it's very industrial but very magical. Um, it's a great hang. So often there are many shows happening in one day. So you can just hang out from one to another, you know, go outside, have a few drinks, talk to your friends, go back in, check what's happening. It's just really lovely. And it's a walking distance from my place. So that's fantastic. too. How would you describe the music that you just performed there? So I played um, with Jeff Younger, uh, his project... Jeff Younger is a Vancouver artist, fantastic guitarist and improviser. And he has this project where um, it's a quartet called Dreaming Skies. And it's basically, I would call it a soundtrack for dreams. The type of sounds that you imagine you would have while you dream. Some are like super, super sweet and, and kind of soft and very relaxing and some are just super weird right so all of that happens while we dream and our memories of dreams are often visual and not sound like right so i find it very interesting to see this project that has no visual content um, it's all sound but it brings you to that world of dreams 
so that was really cool. Uh, the the two other members, so Jeff Younger on the guitar, myself on cello, and then JP Carter on trumpet, and Jonathan Bernard on percussion and vibraphone. I was thinking about your show coming up in the context of your whole week or your whole month as an artist, you know, because everybody like us has this mixture of all kinds of things that happen, right? Mm-hmm. That you have mm-hmm. to mix a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. What what does your mix look like? And then what does it feel like to come out of it and go into like a big performance at the Vancouver Jazz Festival? There's definitely a lot of different things being in a pandemic still, right? And and uh, uh, how that affects um, the whole process of preparing for a show. So that's very interesting. But, you know, there are other things that are part of my life The I teach. So I have my students that I adore. I feel I need very, very different mindsets for performing and for creating music than from teaching. Uh, so those are two different things to balance. Obviously, my personal life, there's always a lot going on. You know, lately has been practical life things. Like I have to finish my taxes. I um, I have to apply for my citizenship. I just learned how to drive. So I had my road test that was very stressful. And now I want to just start to figure out how to use an Evo car. You know, there are all those things that seem like simple, but they do take away from your focus on your practice. So it's very, very interesting for me to navigate all of those as a self-employed person i don't have anyone deciding what my schedule is so it's totally on me right it's my responsibility to juggle all of these and get the best out of it and learn from my mistakes which are many as uh, i would assume all of us as humans so uh it's very interesting so right now regarding this specific show coming up there's a lot in terms of figuring out exactly what i want to do so my my last solo show was already a year ago. So it was in the summer I could perform outdoors, right? So figuring out the music I want to play, I decided to play all my music. So I'll not be performing other composers' uh, music, which I usually uh, do in my solo shows. So that's a different thing for this one. And it's again going to be a mix between improvisation and structured pieces. Uh, it's it's going to happen at the Western Front, which is one of my favorite venues in town, uh, which also happens to be very close to me. So that's fantastic. It's a, a live stream show. So because of the pandemic, it's a small venue, so we cannot actually have an audience in the room. And that's a very different experience itself, right? On itself. There's all these things to to juggle and prepare and even things like, what do you want to wear? Or... What kind of thing do you want to focus on? I love it. I love it. Again, I was given by the Jazz Fest, I was given the opportunity to do whatever I decide to do. So that's really nice. And being a solo show, I get to make all the decisions on my own. And I also love playing with that just brisky thing of not having everything planned. So um, seeing how things feel in the day and what I feel inspired to do. And that is what I feel is the most fun and interesting way of approaching shows of this sort, but it's also a little bit dangerous. So for a little bit of an inside look, now that we've been going through the pandemic and we have shows opening back up here, what is different about the before and after the performance now that you've been through that and seen that versus what Uh, it used to be like? I must say that one thing that is very different for me that's related to the topic not sure if it's exactly what you're asking but it's the fact that i haven't done this for a long time now so my last uh, performance with an audience was maybe in october and that was outdoors right so indoors i haven't performed for over a year and a half so it's it's just strange all the little things that uh, we are so used to as performers, we don't even think about it when we prepare for a show, right? All those little routines that we do that we know will keep us at our best and, and not forget anything and be prepared. All that is kind of a not second nature anymore, right? So it's like, oh my God, am I thinking of everything? Am I preparing well? Like, do I have everything I need? How do I feel? All those things are a little bit different. So that was very interesting to uh, experience. In terms of like more practical things it's very interesting even like getting to the venue you know usually you could easily be like uh someone in the group picks up everyone else and now it's not really like that so if you want to carpool it's like more complicated 
we all had to wear masks on stage except for JP because he plays the trumpet so he that would be complicated so um yeah what else um even in terms of like the jazz fest is incredible with their policies for safety so that was really nice so there are all these uh rules that nobody can touch each other's gear right so usually if i needed some help with something i would just ask the sound technician and they would come and, and just uh work out on the amp or do something and and now that's a different story so Obviously, they were very helpful and everything worked out super well, but there are different ways of doing things. At the end, I just wanted to hug all my colleagues and, and my audience friends, and I can't, right? So all those things, that, that sense of connection that we feel after performing a show and how we want to really uh, interact with our people, it has to happen in a different way now. What are those things that you do that you mentioned to be prepared and to have it all feel smooth and like it's second nature? A lot of it is my own routines because all those things that affect me personally a lot, right? So do I want to have a strong black tea right before I go on stage or not? Like how nervous do I get? How does it affect my body? What else? Like even the sleep, right? Do I want to practice two hours before I go in? Do I just want to warm up or do I have any spots that I want to check? All those little things that... I guess I would just follow my instinct very easily then. But now, even though everything is here, I mean, I've done it for so many years and so often, I, it's, it's like that trust of, can I still trust that my instincts are here? Am I doing the right things? You know? And I've changed a lot too. As I, I, I would assume a lot of my colleagues have changed too. So musicians, we had a year and a half of transformations and not just a normal year and a half, a year and a half that allowed for a lot of growth, I guess, in some cases, that's how I feel for myself. I'm sure a lot of people also had a hard time, so they will have uh, maybe some different uh, experiences and difficulties. Yeah, I've changed a lot. Uh, my, my lifestyle changed a lot. My routines, things like, for instance, meditation, right? I never used to meditate. And now I meditate a lot. I meditate every every day and that gives me a very different perspective of what's happening before uh the concert so like while i prepare but also in those moments where things are a bit more intense i i sense things differently because i've ha been having that training right so i find that very interesting what was it like when you were starting to meditate when you picked up the practice did you just go full on into it right away or was it a little bit staggered what was it like to actually get into that because now it sounds like you're pretty solidly enthusiastic and doing it it was interesting I, I basically do guided meditation so i had to try a few apps and then i chose uh, one that i really liked they they have like a beginner's course so basically you just do one session at a time and you can choose if you want to do it daily or several in a day and I think I didn't do it every day at the start I would just do it whenever it worked and then I started noticing a difference super quickly it was very very weird as soon as I would start the the meditation my body would relax and I feel um I don't know if there is a, a special English word for this but when you um have a, a very special often unexpected experience with nature for instance you just notice the full moon is incredible tonight you just happen or not looking for it you just see it and then it's like your body has like shivers i don't know if there's a word for that or not but that feeling of calm and relaxation and comfort and pleasure so i started feeling that as soon as i would do those sessions so i would start hearing the voice and, and it would just happen. So then I was like, oh, I realized how much that actually had an impact on me. And then I started doing it daily. Sometimes I do several times a day, other, day, other times once a day, but it's, it's very helpful. And what I feel it helped the most with is uh, not getting caught up on things, you know, like it's very easy to, as a musician, to get anxious about things. Uh, there's so much out of our control, right? Especially in improvised music. As a classical musician, which is what I did in the past, everything is more planned and programmed. You know, there are no no last minute changes. But as an improviser, as a, as an improviser, everything is in the moment. So I need that perspective, that distance, that awareness of what's happening. And yeah, meditation came very handy on that. In the broader picture of your career so far. How would you describe the experience of crossing over and being both a classical musician and an improviser? 
I really feel that everyone should improvise. It's one of those things that, of course, every individual has the right to decide what they want to do. But the thing is, when uh, in most schools, when people start studying music, if they're doing classical music, improvisation is not even talked about. It's not part of our education. And the same for composition. We often have a class that is entitled composition, but it's really analysis. It's really looking at other people's pieces and try to understand them and see their structures and where it comes from. But we are not usually taken on the path of creating our own music. Yes, there's a lot that a performer can say when playing other people's music, but it's still not your music, you know? It's still not what your experience is. It's, it doesn't fully reflect you, who you are, your personality, what you're going through. And so that's why I always had that pull to start improvising, start composing. But it's so, so hard. Like classical music, at least in my experience, the hardest thing in the world. And you have to like put every minute you have into it in order to succeed at it. So there was never really free time to explore other things. And um, just to be very clear, this is my experience, right? I'm sure other people have different experiences. So uh, as soon as I had a chance, that's, that's really what I went for. I just uh, started transitioning and experimenting and doing different things. And it has been incredible. And that started after my master's. My master's was still in classical cello performance. But that was, and that was my first degree in Canada. And the university had two different uh, subjects that I could uh, choose. I guess they were optional that made the, a very big, um, basically it was thanks to those that I ended up choosing the career path I did. One of them was Baroque music and the other one was contemporary music. So those can still be included in the, I guess, uh, spectrum of the classical music education, right? It, it, they are just the extremes. We spend so many years learning how to play the music of mostly the Romantic period. So it was, and even a classical. So it was really nice to have an opportunity to go and work on the very early music and then on the completely brand new music. But the contemporary music studio actually still was about playing the music of recent or uh, contemporary composers, some of them alive, some of them not, but it's still not our music, right? So it's music of our time, but written by other people. So that's how I started. I started my career by playing those styles of music that I got very, very in love with. Baroque music on a Baroque cello and then contemporary music. I moved to Vancouver, created a group uh, for um, performances of contemporary music that was Novo Ensemble with Laura Vanek and Gion Ryu on flute and piano. And so that's how it started. And then from there, I started working more with composers. And then I started improvising. And then I started uh, using electronics. And then I started trying to compose my own music. So everything started coming out of it. And uh, in turn, like the classical music got reduced. So you did the isolation commissions, the project here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could use that as an example. Like, how do you put something like that together? What are the steps involved? And how has that process evolved for you over time when you have to do something like you just mentioned? So uh, in a case like uh, the isolation commission, that was basically I had a, a white campus. I was invited to create a video and I could do anything I wanted. So I could have played someone's piece. I could have created my own piece or I could have improvised the piece. Or I could do anything. And what I decided was to improvise. I felt that was close to the start of the pandemic. And I felt, I felt there was so much going on inside of me that it was very, very hard to focus on actually learning someone else's piece. So I felt that is one of the, those cases where was, and that I was mentioning earlier where I wanted to um, actually explore what I was feeling and where I was at with all these changes in the world and personal changes too, and the career obviously getting extremely affected by this pandemic. So yeah, so that's what I did. I basically improvised for, I don't know, one or two weeks uh, and then figured out some patterns I liked, some things that I thought were interesting. And then I started filming. So I would film several takes or record several takes, and then ended up choosing that one. So it's an improvisation, but with some, some material that I already had in mind uh, before I started recording. 
it's interesting because it is a mixture of composition and improvisation, which really reflects how you came to that point and what you learned. Mm -hmm. Everything. Yeah, exactly. And I think I really like that. Even moving forward, I see my compositions having a very strong improvisation component. What's something that's very not like that? What are What's an example of a composition, maybe where you've been commissioned or you've been working for somebody else and you have very strict or specific guidelines and how do you handle that? A composition by other person or by me? By you. Oh, I see. Okay, so that actually doesn't happen very often. So far, I've been completely, I, I've been given the freedom to do as I wish. Um, but I can give an example of there is a piece that I will uh, most likely perform at my upcoming show that is going to be a written piece that I wrote and doesn't have, probably will not have any uh, improvisation component. The interesting side of it is that I didn't compose it like with paper and pen in hand and and uh, in a very uh, intellectual manner uh, planned it and put it on paper. What happened is I often record myself when I improvise when there's material that I like. So in that case, the case of that piece, I actually just transcribed directly from what I had recorded. But now it's written down, right? So now I committed to it. I changed a few things, uh, edited and uh, sections and little details and created that piece. So that I think is the only example of a fully written piece that I have. What about situations nowadays where you are interpreting other people's music? How do you approach that now based on everything that you've learned so far what goes through your mind when you interpret other people's music in a group setting etc mm -hmm. uh, i feel that it depends a lot of who the composer is and what the scene is so i would say classical music is so much more strict in the freedom that the performer is allowed to have if you uh, are given a piece that is all written you are expected to follow absolutely everything that's on the page. You can add some things on top of it. You cannot um, change essential things such as rhythm and notes, but uh, you can phrase differently. You can uh, give it a little bit of a different character here and there. You can uh, add dynamics. Uh, there's a lot we can say to the articulation. Uh, vibrato, for instance, we can change that, the color of the sound. So there are lots of elements. We cannot, we cannot change anything structural. Structural. It's, uh, it's, it's seen as um, a lack of respect for the creator of the piece. That's uh, the context in which I was basically raised as a musician. But if I'm uh, performing music that has been written now, or if it's music um that's more jazzy or indie there is a lot more freedom obviously depends on the specific composer but i'm often given freedom and i feel that having done this for the past few years really allowed me to feel more comfortable changing things and and just adding more of my own interpretation to the to the piece and in a way that also made me more comfortable with uh, putting more of me in the classical pieces, but still within a certain, you know, par certain parameters. But uh, there are composers that just say, okay, I've done my work now, this is my piece, and now it's yours. And you do whatever you want with it. This is your part of the performer. And there are composers that actually come from the classical, um, historically classical education and uh, who are living composers now who I work with that do exactly that. And I love it very much. A very clear case is Georgia Magnanenzi, who is um, a brilliant musician in BC. Uh, he works in Vancouver, but it's based in Roberts Creek. And he does precisely that. When he writes a piece, he's like, this is now your piece. You can do with it whatever you want. And that's incredible. So that's the best of both worlds in my, my mind. When you were a kid in music or just learning in the early years, what role did you imagine yourself in? What was the most exciting one to you that drew you in? I always knew I didn't want to be an orchestra musician. Because again, it's, everything's very structured. So I know a lot of people love it because of the idea of being part of a big group. And that can be extremely exciting. 
And I love that side of it, but I would not want to do it on a daily basis. I guess my dream, that's a, such a good question. My dream was actually just to be able to um, have a good life while being a musician, which seemed almost an impossible dream because it's so hard, right? To, to, to be a musician full time and make a living, especially in Portugal. I find it very, very complicated, uh, very different culture in that regard um, in com comparison to Canada. So uh, I remember the moment where I realized that I have achieved that dream. And it was like so exciting. It's like, oh my God, not only I get to be a full-time musician, I actually absolutely adore my life and I have a bit of free time to do things. And I just, I just love it and I can do my own projects. But I don't think I had a very clear idea of exactly what type of music I wanted to play. What was that moment? That moment was, I call it my midlife crisis, actually, <laughs> even though I was only 28. I think I was just approaching third, you know, and you have this thing of like, wow, I will now no doubt be an adult. Are things in the right track? Am I living my life the way I want to live it? You know, all, all those kinds of questions. So I made a lot of major changes in my life, both personal and professional. I was already living in Vancouver by then. One of the decisions that was very big was uh, getting a divorce. I just realized, and I'm very good friends with my ex, so nothing tragic happens. It's just like, okay, I feel that uh, in order to move forward and be who I am and do my thing, this relationship is not going to allow for that. So that was one of them. Also things related to the family, but musically, I had always had this thing. I know some other musicians have it, um, which is, should I just quit? Should I do something else? Like. This is so difficult. There is no support from society. Like nobody pays for music. We don't have any kind of benefits or, or safety, uh, financial safety. It's just so much hard work. A lot of the unknowns of never knowing how the next month is going to work, if you can pay your rent or not. I, I was used to live with that thought. Should I just do something else? And that's exhausting. I just told myself, I'm going to ask that question and answer it to myself very, very carefully. I'm going to think very well about this for a few weeks, whatever time it takes. And I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to stick to it. And so I analyzed it one last time in a very deep matter. And I just decided I had to be a musician no matter what. And, and it worked. I mean, that was. Um, what was that like nine years ago? And so far I never went back. So things like that. So after that decision, everything became more natural because I knew I was committed to being a musician. I knew how important it was for me. And then that's when things were starting to move more for me in Vancouver and working with different scenes, different groups, doing more of my improv, my projects. Uh, started to playing with a looper and doing things like that. And and that was the moment. So it was, I don't know, maybe two years later that I was like, okay, this is it. This is my dream life. I'm living it right now. It was incredible. What are your top insights about Vancouver as somebody who came here? Because I grew up here. I'll never have that perspective. And I'm always curious to know because other than touring and traveling i've always been here so i'd love to hear what your insights were about vancouver as you came here and since of course uh i kind of i think of people that are from vancouver uh i think it's they're both really lucky and and it's almost like they are cursed because it's in my opinion, my favorite place in the whole world. So I'm like, oh my God, you had a chance to grow up here. You are from here. This is incredible. But at the same time, if you already are born in the most incredible place in the world, everything else is going to be a bit disappointing. So if you want to go live other places, I'm sure it's super cool and important actually to exper experience different cultures, but I see that a lot of people end up coming back. So you go check it out and, and experience things and explore and then people come back. And maybe that's a great thing. Maybe that's a great thing. I personally absolutely adore it here. Um, it's completely different from my experience in Europe, like absolutely contrasting uh, culturally, historically, eh, 
I find it, I found it very overwhelming to, to live in a, in a city as old as Lisbon or a city in the south of Portugal where I lived in my teenage years called Evora, which is a city where Romans were, right? So it still has Roman temples and roads and bridges. So it's very, it's very intense for me to live in a place where so many people have lived. So many wars happened. So many uh, people loved and so many people died. And so many, you know, it's just, it's so full of history. And that felt heavy. And it's very refreshing to come to a place that still has uh, territories that haven't been touched. You know, it's just like in this specific space, there was never a house. You know, that's that's incredible for me to to experience that in my daily life. So that's one of the things. Uh, culturally, things are very different. I think there are beautiful things on both Europe and North America, uh, ways of living life. But I feel that in a way, uh, there's I find more balance here. I found there were more extremes in Europe and here there's more balance. Uh, people are more uh, kind to strangers, more polite. And I know I've heard Vancouverites saying, oh, it's so hard to make friends here and talk to people. It's like, well, yes and no. I don't know. In Portugal, if you ask someone for the time, like if you're on the street and you don't have the time and you just ask, excuse me, could you please tell me what time it is? they most often will not stop. <laughs> They'll think you are crazy or it's, it's very weird. Again, this is my personal experience. And here everyone's very kind. People stop and will take the time to say something. They'll, they'll pass by on the street and, and uh, give you a compliment on your bag or your dress or your hair or your smile just because they want to share that. They want that moment of connection, right? I, don't, I never experienced that in Portugal. So there are different things. So, yeah, so coming to Vancouver was was very refreshing and inspiring too, right? Because everything is so different. But I find it a, an incredible city. I feel that um, it's very open to experimental music. So um, the, there is, how can I put this? There are lots of uh, small organizations and lots of small venues that are doing incredible art in the city. The only problem is that it's not easy for someone that is not involved to find uh, find out about them. So if I would assume if you ask the general um, audience member in Vancouver, what are the main uh, organizations in this uh, city, art organizations, that would be probably the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, the Museum of Anthropology, the Vancouver um, Art Gallery, and the Opera those four, everyone knows about them. But everything else, all the beautiful little places um, are hard to find. Once you know them, I find it incredible. I think there's just such a rich, uh, rich scene, uh, being it music or dance or theater, theater or poetry. It's just really, really fantastic. So I love that. I love that the artists have a chance to create their art to make things happen um, a lot with the support of kind of the council and BCR's council. That's, that's fantastic too. So as an artist, I really like it here. Obviously, yes, we don't have to go into it, but there are lots of issues. So it's like super high rents, right? Make, make, uh, makes it very hard for artists to live here. But in terms of the artistic flexibility we have, the inspiration from uh, nature, from the ocean, from the islands, from the mountains, from the climate changes, like the, the very uh, cold winters with snowy mountains to the beach type of uh, days in the summer, right? Or the parks. Um, I find all of that incredibly inspiring. I'd love to get really specific on what you said about what it needs, the community, and what is missing to help people get to know about things, because that's what I spend most of my time working on. And I love mm -hmm. to hear directly from people who bring it up, because mm -hmm. it's something I love thinking about. And I'm very curious what specific tactics or things or initiatives you have thought of over the years as the things that we need or what some of the things are that you'd most like to see happen. Any thoughts on that? 
Well, I don't have like a specific plan because I, I spend my time more performing and trying to fix these um, um, problems, but I'm definitely aware of them. And I mean, I think there should be a bigger effort from the city of Vancouver on, on having an, an agenda, like a calendar that involves uh, live performance. So I think there is some kind of little booklet that um, includes um, galleries and museums, but I don't think we have anything like that for uh, performance venues, for little organizations, for uh, individual artists, like, um, you know, I guess uh, maybe I can share some names. So uh, there are organizations in town like the Nauk Society or the Hard Rubber Orchestra, or even Vancouver New Music, which is pretty established, but I feel that a lot of people don't know about uh, early music Vancouver, so that's for Baroque music. There are lots of people working so hard, making incredible things happen. Have Some of them have pretty good funding from the Canada uh, Council, but then not a big audience. I feel that we artists are the ones going to see each other's shows mostly. Uh, so yes, I guess there has to be a, an effort to support all of these events, all of these artists, all of these venues. There are such lovely venues in town. Like now, I don't know what's going to happen after the pandemic, right? If they will all be back, the rents are insane, as we know. So some of them might not have survived, but there are lovely places such as uh, China Cloud or Eight East, or there's all these beautiful hubs the western front is still going strong so that's great the western front is uh, um art center ran by artists so places like this should be uh i feel uh introduced to a vaster audience and honestly i i just i cannot think of other ways i think it has to be the city of vancouver it costs money to advertise to let people know that these things are happening. So how uh, could we make it work if it was not from a, a funded institution that wants the best for the city? I mean, um, yes, anyone could do it, but how would they fund that? Could have a monthly newsletter, Could it could be um, uh, funding for these venues to promote their shows. Um, yeah. Like, it's a lot of work. To, to create uh, or to raise awareness of what's happening culturally in the city. So there are lots of individuals that make an effort. Like I'm thinking of new Dadun, for instance. He used to have this newsletter that he would send, but this is an individual making his own effort. You know, it's so beautiful that he does it, but he's volunteer volunteering to do it. And thanks to him, a lot of people get to hear about it. But he cannot obviously possibly reach everyone or... Um, cover all kinds of genres of music or dance or theater or poetry, right? So there are uh, efforts, but I feel that we need a, a bigger thing that would give you access to the information on all the scenes, bigger and smaller events, bigger and smaller venues. What kind of ideas did you have? I'm very curious to hear about that. Like who could take on a, a task like this? It's very interesting to me how big or how small you go or how wide you try to look out at all the different possible subgenres and scenes and whether you try and aggregate the most possible events and happenings and and then try to allow people to filter out and and drill down to what they want or if you have a bunch of people who focus on their own first and then you end up with a bunch of people doing it for their own communities, you know, both the, mm -hmm. the difference between those things is super interesting to me and mm -hmm. also just to what extent people end up doing it themselves. Like if you think of something like a Corey weeds where it's like very artist driven in Vancouver jazz and mm -hmm. the, the scene comes from, it feels almost like it comes from one artist, but it really comes from a core um, mm -hmm. niche and then mm -hmm. it, it goes out and it tries to find its audience in the world by promoting itself. And the other way around would be to try and know everything that's happening and sort it and allow people to land with you and then drill down to where they want to be, you know? So I think about mm -hmm. the differences between those two a lot. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, it's true that 
there has to be some kind of organization of the information and, and like nucleus of information are good. But I just feel that, I don't know, I often meet people that are dying to find shows and they don't know how. I, I find that social media actually helps, but you have to know who posts about those things and then uh, go from there and build your own network, right? You start going to one show, then you hear about another one, then you make a friend that also knows about some shows of a different style of music and you build it that way. But I don't know, I, I, I still feel <laughs> it would be great to have like this, uh, a way to access everything. And if yes, ideally divided by, categories so someone can find what they're interested in but even if it's a website you know like some the the city of vancouver has the, the cultural services right so for me it makes so much sense i feel the artists are living the city you know like people are, are going away and i think that's the responsibility of the city and yes everyone doing a smaller part that's fantastic and we try but a lot of artists are also um so busy trying to make enough money to live to survive there is no extra time for meetings for planning for organizing for uh, doing that type of work that's another thing i'm really interested in is that catch 22 you if you imagine yourself as an individual who has to be responsible for both audience building and the presentation um you don't have time to audience build and then you don't have the audience to uh, fuel the presentation. Breaking mm -hmm. that vicious circle mm -hmm. is, is something I think about a lot. Exactly. It's so complicated. And often we see fabulous artists not succeeding in terms of making a living because um, they are either not interested at all in, in doing that work of reaching audiences or they're just don't know how to use social media or are not interested, you know, like it's, it's not, no longer you can be a self-employed artist, a successful self-employed artist just by doing your skill beautifully, which should be actually the focus, but it's not, unfortunately. So yeah, there's like, um, a ton of different skills that an artist has to have in order to survive on uh, today's times in a city like Vancouver. Uh, we have to be super flexible, super like adapt to different things, try to do all different, I know, like you have to have good photos. You have to have good recordings. You have to write, um, um, know how to write about your projects and describe yourself. So these are already very different skills. Uh, you have to, uh, be present in the scene, right? You need to connect to people. You need to uh, constantly remind people you exist. And, and yeah, and then you still have to deal with contracts and payments and unions and uh, finding more gigs and putting yourself out there. It's just so much, you know, and obviously can take the focus out of your art. So I definitely feel that, uh, artists would have a much better life if we had free time to fight for our rights. We don't have uh, the time to actually deal with it. We are just working so hard to, to survive as artists that we don't have the time to create a better life for ourselves. So we don't have time to fight or energy to fight for um, better life or, or what I would call fair uh, quality of life really so it's obviously not an easy question but what's the first step that an artist in that situation has to take is it something like reducing the load of work that's making the problem difficult is it something like focusing on only the most important things so that you end up with more time or is it something else that's that's precisely the thing i don't think it's the artist cannot do anything Imagine I'm actually lucky I can pay my rent and I can have a good life or decent life, but I don't have a pension. I, I don't know what will happen when I retire. I cannot afford having a car. I cannot afford having children or a family. I cannot afford going on holidays. You know, it's, it's complicated. So those, those are very important life choices. And I feel that people don't necessarily realize that that's how uh, artists um, have to live their lives. If, if you decide to have a kid, that just that is like a 
very complicated thing. Okay, again, there lots of people have different situations. I'm talking for myself. Those were my my decisions. So I don't think that's something that can be put on the artist. If you are playing all these gigs, being very badly play, uh, paid, um, just in order to get enough money to pay a rent, you will not have time. You will not have energy. You have to pay a rent. So you cannot decrease the amount of gigs you're playing. So you keep playing these bad gigs that don't give you enough pay because you have no way out of the cycle. Yes, if you had a break, you could maybe try to fight this, right? I feel that uh, another thing that happens is we are so used to like be badly paid that some people just accept it, right? So it's true that if you are starting out as an artist, you have no other option and you have to accept those gigs. But if you're an established artist, I think um, I would like to say that it's a bit of our responsibility in that sense. We can try to educate the people that hire us on what a fair fee would be. So often in cases like that, what I do is I don't know if they can pay the fair fee or not. So if I'm really interested, I still give them my fair fee. I, when asked, this is how much uh, I charge for this job. And if for some reason you cannot pay about it, talk to me. It's flexible. We can, we can discuss it, you know. But I feel that's very important that people... Um, know that it's not cool to hire an artist to go play for two hours and pay them a hundred dollars. It's not cool. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about the show? Well, I can share that it's a solo cello show and I, I'll probably be using different instruments and different things. So I might, it's very, very hot now because of this heat wave. So my plan was to bring my Baroque cello as well, which include it has gut strings on them which are very sensitive to the heat so i don't know if that will work but it would be fun so i might bring both my modern cello and my baroque cello i like playing with different bows and different accessories and gadgets there will be some electronics i'll be doing some looping and yeah let's see what happens a little bit um a mystery an adventure what have your solo shows been like in the past i am looking forward to hearing this one but i haven't heard you do this before Ah, okay. So um, I started doing solo shows, I think, about five years ago. And I usually perform pieces by other people. Uh, so that's the first years I was just choosing pieces for solo cello that I really liked. Some are acoustic, some, um, some involve electronics, some were commissioned commissions and written specifically for me. So there were premieres, which I find super interesting to do. Uh, but I would also sometimes play Baroque music. I would play some bass suites or even uh, I'll play Gabrielli, Richard Curry. I would do arrangements of pieces that are not for solo cello. I've happened to use some little different instruments as well to complement the performances. So there has been a variety of things happening, but I think starting in the, maybe it was my last show. So the last solo show I performed was in August, I believe. So uh, the summer of the pandemic at a garden in Mount Pleasant. It was really a, a very, very beautiful um, setting. And I did improvise on that show. So that one was a combination of some of the written pieces that I used to perform in my solo shows with some improvised pieces. And I guess that was a transition then because this one is going to be fully my music so some improvise some not improvise but all of it will be my music so that's kind of i hope that gives you an idea of like what's happening right now one last thing you're working on an album what's happening there so far oh uh so this is an album recorded at afterlife studios which is my favorite studio it's an album that again features a mix of improvised music and written music by composers other than myself. So it has um, four written pieces, one by uh, Gabrielli, and this is supposed to be one of the ever written pieces for solo cello in Bologna in the Baroque period. And then that opens the album. There is a piece by Linda Kidlin Smith 
who is a composer, fantastic composer based in Toronto, a living composer. And uh, it's also called Richard Carr. And uh, so those two are for solo cello. There's a piece by Vancouver composer Craig Alders that is for a solo cello with a tape, so with a recording, and actually features sounds of the CD as well. It's, it's a pretty cool piece. And there is uh, a piece by Martin Reisel that is one of the hardest pieces I've ever had to play <laughs> that I played for Sonic Boom Festival at the Western Front. Martin is also a Vancouver composer, plays a cello, plays the guitar. And that's a very cool piece. But we changed these pieces a little bit. So some of them have improvisations on top of them. So the piece by Martin and that was initially for solo cello actually now has Aaron uh, Bajakin playing electric guitar on top of it. And I, I think it sounds incredible. So, and then there are lots of tracks with improvisation. Um, the guest improvisers are Jesse Zuba, Georgi Magnanzi on electronics, Aaron Bajakin on guitar, and uh, Kenton Lowen on drums. So it's a team of uh, five musicians, really. And that's coming out probably end of September, early October. So I'm really excited for that. The name of the album is Red. And that's really my debut album. I'm really excited for you too to hear about that. And I found Yay. everything you said uh, in the last hour so insightful and you're so willing to share things and you're just up to so much cool stuff and it just keeps going on. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, subscribe to get more from wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review if you can, and tell your friends to find the Rhythm Changes podcast in their app of choice. And if you really like this kind of thing, go to rhythmchanges.ca to learn more about what we do, or visit patreon.com slash rhythmchanges to support us directly. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on the Rhythm Changes podcast. Rhythm Changes is a Chernoff Music production.